Um, this morning, as I had the opportunity to preach, I haven't had, or I haven't preached in a long, long time. Um, f- what I feel like is a long time anyway, so I feel a bit out of practice. Um, anyway, I had the opportunity to have a free preach. My personal preference would be for Pete to say, here's what I'd like you to preach on. I go and do the work and, uh, and, and preach. But uh, this time he said, have a free preach. I was reading through 1 Corinthians, and uh, what stood out to me in particular uh, was the sections on marriage. Um, given the context of today and given the context of our culture and the surrounding banter around this particular word, one word, uh, and the institution, uh, I, I wanted to um, take the opportunity to invest in marriages and, um, and also to bolster, I guess, and strengthen uh, marriage as it currently stands uh, within, our, within our culture. Um, what I don't want to do is launch into an apologetic and, uh, and arguments for and against marriage and same-sex marriage. That's not what I'm trying to do here today. However, I uh, would enjoy a conversation about that. Um, and there's a particular section in 1 Corinthians as he ends the book uh, to the people in Corinth. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 16:13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There's some pretty strong commands there, aren't there? Be watchful. That's a, that's a serious command. It's like protect. Be on guard against uh, what's going on about you. Um, be on guard against your old life infiltrating uh, your new life in Jesus. Stand firm in the faith. Um, there's probably never such a time. There's, there's always been times. Sorry, I'll retract that. Uh, right now is a good time to stand firm in your faith. And to trust that Jesus Christ is truly Lord, that he is the Son of God, and believe him uh, when he says what he says. To go and submit to him, to do all that he's called you to do. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. I was struck by this because I don't think it's right that a woman should act like a man. I don't think Paul's trying to say that either. But what he is trying to say is take courage. Uh, What most people would say about that is uh, they'd go back to a place like Joshua, uh, where God says, be strong and courageous. Go and do everything I've called you to do and be strong and courageous in doing that. And so the invitation is there. Act like men. Be strong and courageous in your faith as you keep following Jesus. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And this is where I'm going to start this morning. Uh, I've considered and prayed about what to preach and I want to draw your attention simply to the home and in particular marriage. There's plenty of banter going on around us regarding this word and the institution it's based upon. But my goal, as I've said, uh, is to provide uh, some encouragement and to bolster marriages, um, to, to bolster the role of a husband and wife in a marriage and within a family. Um, the scripture above was written to Christians who were very liberal in their thinking. Um, it, as we'll find out later, it wasn't unlike today's culture. Um, very, very similar in, in the way that they were behaving, the, the things that were going on at the time. Um, and so he encouraged the people to be watchful of deception and lies, stand firm in the faith of Jesus Christ, act like men to be courageous and be strong. And finally, let all you do, all you do be done in love. So this theme of love... I'm talking about marriage today, right? But this theme of love that is the call of every person who loves and follows Jesus um, is, is one that applies to every person. So when I talk about the love between a husband and wife today, and when I talk about the love that God has for all his people called the church, um, I think, and it's pretty clear that it's applicable to all people. It takes a particular shape and form in marriage, but it's applicable to all people in the sense that all people are called to love. 
Robert Menzies said this about marriage. Robert Menzies was one of the prime ministers, Australia's prime ministers. Um, I do not believe that the real life of this nation is to be found either in great luxury hotels and the petty gossip of so-called fashionable suburbs or in the officialdom of organised masses. It's to be found in the home of people who are nameless and unadvertised and who, whatever their individual religious conviction or dogma, see in their children their greatest contribution to the immortality of their race. The home is the foundation of sanity and sobriety. It is the indispensable condition of continuity. Its health determines the health of the society as a whole. Um, whether you liked or disliked this man, I think that what he said there is, is largely true um, and has some real insight into even what's going on today uh, within families, within marriages, uh, and within society as a whole. Um, but with that comes a, a very, very strong push at a cultural level uh, with the idea that you can have it all, that you can have it all. Virginia Horsager, a successful news anchor, wrote, prob- uh, wrote a probing article about the advice she received from her fe- feminist mother's generation. She criticised those who said they could have it all. For those of us who listened to our feminist foremothers about and applauded feminist leaders and writers, for all of us who took all that on board and forged ahead, crashed through barriers and carved out good, successful and even some brilliant careers, we're now let, many of us at least, as, sorry, we're now left as premature empty nesters. We're alone, childless, many of us partnerless or drifting along in per- permanent temporariness to describe that somewhat ambiguous, uncommitted type of relationship that seems to dominate among childless professional couples in their 30s and 40s. What's interesting about this is the huge dissatisfaction that comes from largely pursuing personal satisfaction or career goals. And I would say it would be true of a male or a female. Um, it, whether, whether you're doing that as a male or a female, the same dissatisfaction uh, would come if that's all you pursued. Uh, I fully appreciate also that certainly not every female in this situation, nor will it always be the case, but I think it bears some truth to the fact. There's a burning question that goes along with this. I've been reading a really interesting book by Kevin Andrews, uh, who is a politician um, and who looked after uh, the family and community sort of portfolio um, at a federal level. And he wrote this book based on his research of over 30 years. Um, him and his wife have been investing into marriage and it's a pre-marital education um, for over 30 years and it, I think he's worth listening to. This was part of his research um, that he did that he found that uh, among scholars the instit- uh, in the Institute for Social Research, they posed what they described as the biggest question facing young adults in the future. This is it. How do, you, how do people choose among the principles of equality, freedom and family commitment when these highly valued goods become mutually exclusive rather than mutually reinforcing options? How do people take advantage of the freedom to pursue their own or individual goals and aspirations while at the same time maintaining family commitments and responsibilities? Do you see the question? Have you ever asked yourself the question, how do I balance it all out? Like how do I balance marriage it's a, it seems to be a really important place how do i balance family and work life i've heard people ask this all the time particularly in our culture uh where to be busy seems to be the norm um rather than to be settled uh and at peace with what you're doing and and how things are going um and maybe you've asked this question for yourself personally um whether you're married or not how do i balance what's really important like people and my desire to achieve well in my job. 
Um, to do those things are not evil. To pursue goals and personal career goals and things like that are not, are not wrong. But they may become wrong if they become the most important thing. Because you forget the most important thing. God and people. God draws the uh, two, all the commandments in the Bible, he draws down to two things. Jesus says, to love God and to love people. And so if you miss that and everything else becomes more important, that becomes a real danger for you. And you may end up like, uh, like Miss uh, Horsager, um, dissatisfied at the end of your life, going, I miss something valuable. If you read the front page of the Courier-Mail yesterday, um, you would have seen a uh, popular football coach um, of the Crows who found at the end of his career, dang it, I've missed it. I missed the most important thing for my children. There was a massive disconnect between his fatherhood and his work uh, and he'd got them flipped up around the wrong way. And he felt the, the dissatisfaction that went with that. So today, what I'm inviting you to do, uh, we're going to open up to Ephesians 5, if you've got your Bible there, Ephesians 5. And uh, I'm, I'm inviting you to take a marriage inventory. Um, for those of you who are married or who, who aspire to marriage, which statistically is most people, most people aspire to a, a good and healthy marriage, um, it, to take an inventory of your marriage and go, okay, it's a good time to stop good time to reflect and to learn and grow. What can I do better? Where can we be growing and changing as a married couple? Does it look like this? Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, sorry, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You notice within this scripture that while it's talking about marriage, it's talking about the church as well. Which is, if you're here today and you love Jesus, or if you don't love Jesus and you want to love Jesus, you become part of his church and you get to receive of this incredible sacrificial love. And be changed by it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's something about this mystery, I think, that brings you back to the simplicity of love that doesn't boast, that doesn't compete to be better than someone else, but instead, uh, is the not advertised, no-name love that Menzies was talking about. You know, the sim- simple, no-name household, they're not flashing their stuff all over Facebook, they're just getting on with life uh, and, and enjoying being a family. Uh, and, and they're developing, growing, making memories together. And they're growing as a married couple together. Um, the simplicity of that is wonderful. And I think there's an element with which uh, Paul's encouraging people to come back to that simplicity uh, of of uh, love within a marriage. It's the no-name love that draws you into the reality of God and His extravagant yet simply profound love displayed in Christ's life, death and resurrection. But this doesn't happen with ease. It, it doesn't just happen uh, just by the off chance. You know, a marriage that looks like this or a marriage that looks anything like God wants it to look like uh, doesn't just happen rolling on year by year cruising on ahead 
Uh, Jay Adams, who's a biblical counsellor from over in the States, says this, Most marriages develop their characteristic patterns not by design but by drift. Courses of, of least resistance, following one's own desires and the like, in time develop into patterns. But you'll never drift into God's pattern. It will come only by repentance, by prayerful, and un- prayerful understanding and by conscious decision to follow it. That decision must be backed by continued daily awareness of what you are doing and a repetitive effort to realize God's design in all that you do. So is marriage something that will just cruise along and somehow develop into this amazing, wonderful thing? No, I don't think so. And anyone who's married would agree with that. It's not something that sort of naturally snowballs. Uh, It's something that takes work and investment and, and time. And that's what I'm inviting you to do today. Um, the institution of marriage, says the Council of Families in America, was designed less for the accommodation of adults in love than for the proper functioning of society, especially regarding the care of children. Indeed, marriage as an institution is historically based on a fundamental realisation that all effective ties between men and women, no matter how biologically based they may be, are notoriously fragile and breakable. You relate to any other person and there's going to be trouble at some point, at some stage. If you're going to go deep with them and have good friendship, uh, there's going to be trouble at some point. Any person knows that. It's painful to be in relationships with people. But here it goes. It keeps going. Because of this fact, an important aspect of marriage in both its legal and religious context are the vows of fidelity and permanence that are always, almost always part of the wedding ceremony. In large measure, these promises are designed to bind males to long-term commitment in order to foster the social institution of fatherhood. You see fatherhood decline, you see fatherhood uh, under demise, and you see families breaking down. You see society breaking down because of this. somehow the way God knit the society together, uh, this was just so integral in what he was doing. And, uh, and where you see it break down, you sort of see all these other chinks of society start to break down as well. Think about those two words, permanence and fidelity. Permanence and fidelity. These words are almost non-existent today. They certainly mean choosing once and remaining with that choice. I was talking to my mate out at Longreach. He's a teacher out there. And he said within the school and even within their church, uh, he said that uh, the transient nature is just unbelievable. People go out, do their time and get out of there. Uh, There's no real permanence in what people go out there to do. It's not like they're called out there and that's where they're going to invest their life. Um, they're in and they're out really quickly. Am I saying that's evil? No, I'm not saying that's evil, but it sort of reflects this whole idea that permanence and fidelity are not things that are really pushed and sought after um, largely in culture today, I would say. Uh, They certainly mean choosing once and remaining, to live under vow before God and man, to remain with one spouse till death do us part. This is difficult and sometimes painful. It certainly gives up desires for others or for a single lifestyle. So you're saying in, in, in saying you're going to marry one person, one if you're a husband or wife, you're saying I'm going to forgo all other desire for other women or men uh, and I'm going to stick with this one person for the rest of my life till death do us part. Uh, in giving up desires, um, there's actually life. You can trust Christ when he says to lose your life is to find it. Now, this is applicable for anyone. Jesus invites all people to come and follow him and to lose their life so that they would actually gain life. So there's this whole idea of of sort of squashing down the meanness of my nature, the desire for me, the desire for I, the desire for things I want, 
getting that squashed down and ultimately removed actually means life for you. In the self-forgetful nature of Christ's love, in the self-sacrificing nature of Christ's love, there's somehow life in it. It doesn't make sense. It's like a paradox. It's like two things that go against one another. Life and giving up life. What? That doesn't make sense. But somehow, Jesus says it's true. I wonder if you're testing that out. I wonder if you're actually finding out what it means uh, to give up your life for the good of someone else. To keep your life is to gain nothing and even forfeit your soul. Before I go into uh, the rest of Ephesians 5, um, I'd like to talk about three myths about marriage uh, that... I think Ephesians 5 really tackles. Um, the, the first myth is that trial and difficult, difficulty cannot be good for me. Anyone who gets married knows that it comes with certain trials and difficulties. Uh, like I said, two imperfect people coming together start to clash at times. Um, but you, you can take hope in the fact that God uses those times for, for his good. It's a, it's a myth to suggest that trial or difficulty is somehow not part of God's plans. Marriage has an intriguing way of revealing areas of your life you'd rather not give up, yet would be more fully alive if you did give them up. If you think about that. At times it can mean walking through painful disagreements, challenging moments of having less than you may have hoped for, and just plain discomfort. There's a uh, well-regarded teacher here at the school, his name was Asher Johnson, and he wrote a letter to the staff of the school uh, talking about some of the pain of his experiences um, after he'd left. And he, he, he made this comment about um, walls around us or seeming discomfort can seem like a jail. He says this, Walls around can also be called jail. When opposition is at all sides, perhaps it is a season in a jail cell God has for you, like Joseph in Egypt. Too often we interpret difficult circumstances in life as something we should avoid, can you imagine what would have happened if Joseph successfully avoided or weaseled his way out of prison? Not only would he have missed his divine encounter, but a whole nation would have perished by famine. We call it jail in the Old Testament and the cross in the New. Either way, it's to be embraced. And so if you're walking through challenging moments in your marriage today, take hope, take stock that uh, God is going to use these moments to refine you and change you and make you a different person, a better person, a person more fully alive as a result, um, if you're willing to walk through, to persevere. So stand firm and keep walking through. God has a way of redeeming what we think are jail cells and turning deserts into rivers of joy. He's not done yet. He's not done yet. Myth number two, marriage is personal and private. There's another myth that suggests that marriage is a private enterprise which will happen naturally. That there is nothing to learn. This is incredibly isolating and leaves those who struggle in marriage, which let's face it is everyone who lives in reality, hopelessly floundering about like a fish out of water. Marital educators have found a number of false beliefs that many people believe about marriage. Here's 13 of them. Number one, if you are in love, a relationship will be good spontaneously and will not require work. That's enough. Just stay in love and uh, it's just going to spontaneously work. Number two, a relationship, especially marriage, marriage, stays the same. It doesn't undulate. It doesn't go up and down. It doesn't move and change direction. It just straight, stays the same, monotonous every day. Maybe you feel like that in marriage, but it's not necessarily the same. Uh, the less we know about our partner, this is number three, the more romantic our relationship will be. That's weird, isn't it? It's like the more I hide, the better our relationship will be, the more romantic it will be. 
uh, instead of being uh, completely open and free to discuss whatever's happening in your life or whatever's happened in your past um, as, a, as a way to increase romance. In a significant relationship, emotions must always be intense and positive. Well, that's not true. Emotions aren't always intense and positive. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean the relationship has to change. In marriage, there must be constant sexual attraction. Also not true. My partner must completely complete me. That is, that is make up for all my shortfalls. So th- your partner is there to actually fulfill all the shortfalls, all the deficits that you have. Uh, what a mess. We will live happily ever after. Love means never have to say you're sorry. Number nine, my spouse should always understand me. Number 10, if my partner doesn't meet my needs, I'll find someone else. Number 11, love is enough. There's nothing to learn. Number 12, I lo- oh, sorry, if you love me, you'll dot, dot, dot. It's like this bartering sort of system. If you love me, then you'll do that for me. Uh, and number 13, I'll do my half if they do their half. Uh, these become really problematic, don't they? And they can probably be assumptions that people think entering into marriage or things that you cruise into as your marriage progresses. Unless you take note and unless you actually take time to uh, look at your marriage and, uh, and invest time and energy into, uh, into making it what it ought to be. Myth number three, conflict destroys a marriage. This is the idea that uh, aligns with the false expectation that the other person is meant to serve me and make me happy. So if we enter into conflict, they better do what they need to do to make me feel happy again, Um, which becomes really messy. Uh, It's certainly not the image of love that God designed um, within marriage. Um, The research from what Kevin Andrews found, the research actually suggests that people are happier and more fulfilled and the, the... Bond within marriage, the oneness within marriage, is actually increased as you walk through conflict and as you learn ways to, uh, to handle the conflict within your marriage. At this point, I would say that uh, there are marriages that don't go well and there are marriages where uh, they become abusive and uh, particularly messy. And I'm not saying that you should just stick it out and uh, be like a silent doormat who says and does nothing. Um, there ought to be ways that you work out to, to go and find help on that sort of stuff. Um, and we're more than happy to talk with you about that. Um, so I'll just preface that. Paul's aiming here in Ephesians 5 to display what a redeemed people will look like. So when God, what, what Paul's trying to help the people understand is that here's what culture looks like. All right, in all, in all of its good things and its bad things and all of its sin and all of its mess. And here's what the redeemed people of God will look like. So God comes and rescues people and saves people and they're going to look different because of the fact that God's spirit dwells within them. If you go back with me in Ephesians 5 to verse 18, um, it's a really important preface to what goes on um, with marriage in uh, 25 to 33. It says this, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit. So what follows on after that particular verse is all presumed upon the fact that someone is filled with the Spirit. Not any Spirit, but the Holy Spirit of God. So when you come and you follow Christ and He brings His Holy Spirit to come and dwell and live within you, uh, this is what your life ought to look like. 
And this is what your life will be transformed to look like. Keeps going. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's another really crucial point. When we talk about submission later for a wife to submit to her husband, uh, this comes with the preface that people are created equally in, equal in value and dignity. There's no person more valuable or less valuable based on anything. Uh, but people were created with value and dignity. Uh, there's different roles within society and different uh, ways that uh, God has set up authority. That means that these equal people with value and dignity have different roles and different authority within that. Uh, but that doesn't detract from the fact that all people ought to be respected in that sense. Keeps going. Wives, submit to your husbands. Sorry. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So again, you hear this language that if you are the church, if you are God's people, then there's a submission to God in his incredible love and that his incredible love will actually change you and transform you. So whether you're a husband, a wife, a man, a woman, a child, you have this submission to God that's absolutely necessary. And it's not necessarily like it's going to be a duty, like I have to submit to God again. I might feel like that at times. But there ought to be this great joy because you see the incredible intensity of God's love that he poured out through Jesus Christ, the death of his very own son, so that you might be redeemed and made whole and made perfect and pure and right. That's incredible. Who doesn't want to respond to that sort of love? Weird sort of pride that can sometimes go on. Back in the time when this, when this scripture was written, most non-Christian household codes, so they had a code for how a household was meant to work, how it was meant to be established. I think it wouldn't be bad to have household codes. You see it sometimes when you walk into houses and you see the rules of this household. Laugh often, laugh loud, eat together. You know, like people have all these different rules of their household. I think that's an attempt at somehow bringing back household codes um, for how you're meant to be relating in this household, what this household is going to look like. The household codes in that time displayed how the wife and children should treat their husband, but had nothing about how he was to treat them. So it's almost like the husband or the man had this uh, power that he often usurped and abused to treat men, uh, women and children, his wife and children, however he liked. Um, and so within that comes this idea of submission. And you can understand, if that's the sort of culture that's going on at the time, you can understand that women in the time weren't really happy about the idea of submission because they didn't understand, they couldn't clearly see what it was for a husband to love their wife or a father to love their children appropriately. Here's what somebody said, a commentator said, There is little doubt what submission meant in the ancient world in which disdain for women was almost universal. William Barclay sums it up. The Jews had a, lot of, a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. The position uh, was worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. 
The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct, and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome, in Paul's day, the matter was still worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. It is not too much to say that the whole atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. Sound familiar? Yeah. Our world today, the marriage bond seems to be in, uh, on the verge of complete breakdown. But I want to tell you today that just because that's what the, is going on in the world, God's church, his people, actually have a better way to live and are more fulfilling. All the research within this book, I'd, l- I'd love for you to um, have a read of it if you get the chance. All the research in this book says that within a happy marriage um, between a man and a woman and with, within that, the children, the family, people are most happy. People are actually most satisfied within that context. Um, and there's good fruit that continues down for all society. Doesn't mean that you can't be happy and not married. It's not what I mean. But within that context of marriage, that's, that's where there's, uh, there's greatest joy. So I want the husbands, I'll invite the husbands to come with me and pause for a moment and learn to pursue. Elizabeth Elliot said this about men. The world cries for men who are strong, strong in conviction, strong to lead, to stand, to suffer. I pray that you will be that kind of man, glad that God made you a man, glad to shoulder the burden of manliness in a time when to do so will often bring contempt. So to imitate Christ with this Ephesians 5 sort of love uh, is not an easy call. It's not like this is the life of ease. You should just jump in and get married. I've often heard um, men giving advice to men, to young men, before they get married saying, don't you just think you can jump into it? Are you ready to lay down your life and give up your own life, your own desires, your own, um, your own uh, things that you want to push for and pursue so that you can love your wife well and your family well? Are you willing to sacrifice your own desires so that they're cherished and loved and, uh, and they're looked after? So there's a bit of a responsibility here. Imitate Christ to imitate this kind of love means to participate first with him in his act of love. If you're a husband today and you want to love your spouse well, then the, f- it, the first point of call is to actually find out, well, how are you actually receiving God's love? How are you submitting to God and his incredible act of love to you? And how are you letting that change you and transform you? Is there points in your life where you just go, no, nah, I'm not willing to change. I'm just going to keep stalwarting ahead and keep going. Uh, regardless of what God shows me, regardless of what I learn, I'm not, not willing to be changed. That will directly affect the way that you love your spouse, the way that you, uh, that you bless her with your love. So to be drawn into receiving of God's love, that through his great sacrifice in Jesus, to daily dwell in God's goodness to you, and out of that realize your weakness and sin, and draw from the fountain of his grace for you. So to love your wife by giving up your life for her, just as Christ did. Words that come to mind might be limitless. Limitless. When Christ died, that showed that there was no limit to his love. And in some sense, the husband and wife relationship, the man and wife, the marriage relationship is meant to reflect this. It's limitless. It's unconditional. It's no matter what the personal cost, seeking their good. This is a massively high standard which is impossible to meet. Wouldn't you agree? As a husband? 
Like when you read something like this and go, far out, I'm, that, that does not look like me at all. <laughs> might be glimpses of it, there might be little bits of it, but it does not look like me at all. Doesn't that only show how much you need Christ to actually work in you to then go and love your wife and love her really well? Christ did it for the joy set before him. It wasn't drudgery for Christ. It was painful. Yes, it was painful. It's always painful to love at times. Yet the fruit from it is always marvellous. Driven by joy in doing his Father's will and making holy his church. The word love here um, is a word that you need to understand is different from like an emotional love. So it's not like a love that um, makes you feel good all the time. It's a committed, permanent, fidelity sort of love, a covenant love uh, that goes beyond how I feel. Emotions in this sense of love actually are a thing that tag behind the persistent covenant love of a husband to wife and even wife to husband. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to make notes, 1 Corinthians 13 is a wonderful description of what this love looks like. For love to be patient, it means that there's impatience involved. <laughs> All right? And I need to learn to be patient. Learning to be patient is never easy. For love to be kind, it means that there's probably unkindness that's involved. People are going to be unkind to me. My wife is probably going to be unkind to me at some stage. But I'm called to love in a kind way. And to continue maintaining that love and so on it goes. It displays love in an unreal way that's far more reality than the wishful thinking that the love that I have for my spouse will be constantly happy and make me feel good all the time. So do you feel good in marriage? Is love meant to make you feel good? I think it is, absolutely. And there's meant to be emotion that goes with love and the way that a husband loves his wife or a wife loves her husband. Um, But is it always going to feel that way? No. And that's where marriage holds your relationship together, not love. The the idea that you've made a covenant vow to this person for the rest of your life is what holds your marriage together, not necessarily love that makes you feel good. In the previous verses, Paul talks of a husband as head, just as Christ is head of the body, the church. And as I've read and as I've thought about this, it's a very privileged position of generosity. For Christ to love his bride, the church, uh, it meant that he gave up everything for her so that she might be purified, so that she might be made wonderfully beautiful and radiant, which we'll read it, we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, it's a privileged position of generosity. Our job as, hu- as husband is above all in the giving of love, while your wife is the one who gets to be loved. So a husband and wife, a wife is a recipient of this incredible love. Firstly, from God. That's the primary call of a wife. And secondly, from a husband. Husband, you get to take the initiative in self-donating love. Don't wait for everything to be right, for her to change, for your work to settle down, to be less busy. If the priority that Paul is placing here on marriage is second only to love God, then now is the time to pause and pursue For a husband to pause and pursue his wife, just like Christ pursued, he he left his place in heaven and he came to the earth so that he could pursue and love the very people who at times hated him. Your wife's submission is meant to be motivated by this. So if you're a husband and you're trying to force your hand in your wife submitting to you, uh, I would suggest that it's, it's not something's gone astray 
something's gone wrong in the way that you're understanding love and you're understanding submission. If you are pouring out your life in this way, uh, laying down your life, sacrificing for the good and for the betterment of your wife, then uh, submission is something that will be motivating for your wife. It's like, man, my husband loves me so much. I, I can't help but submit to him. I can't help but love him and, uh, and follow where God's calling us as a couple. A really practical way may be to take notes on your wife. Have a little book, have a little file on your computer where you can actually take notes about what you're learning about your wife, what she likes, what she dislikes, maybe little comments of, um, that she made about things that she would like uh, or goals or desires in the future. Um, so learn about her. Ask how you can pray for her and serve her within the household at this time. That changes throughout, doesn't it? Um, when children enter in, uh, that the whole thing changes about the way a husband will act and behave within the household um, and the way that he takes up some of the slack um, when the wife is very much tired and, uh, and heavily pregnant. It can be challenging. Um, a really practical one in my household, my wife is pregnant with our fourth child and... Um, and I'm trying to build a fence outside. Uh, and that fence has taken a long, long, long time because uh, of the interruptions that, that come along with that. And yes, it's frustrating, but uh, I know, and as I've read this, I've been challenged again to take joy in it uh, because these people are far more important than my stinking fence going around my house. Um, so work out what are the ways that I can serve you at this time that changes throughout your marriage and, uh, and what that looks like. Number five, sorry, number four is stop. Take time daily to pause and share your life with her and hers with you. When self-donating, selfless, pursuing, laying down your life for her good sort of love is outpouring from a husband to a wife, then I would say submission of a wife who receives this love is made far less difficult and far less apparently evil than what our culture would suggest it is. Here's how one uh, commentator put it. The heavenly bridegroom's plan is to sanctify her and finally to present her to himself. So this is Jesus' plan for his church, all the people that he redeems, all the people that he saves and makes his own. His plan is to sanctify, that means purify and make wonderfully beautiful, uh, and finally to present her to himself. The sanctification appears to refer to the present process of making her holy in character and conduct by the power of the indwelling spirit. While the presentation is eschatological, that means end times, and will take place when Christ returns to take her to himself. He will present her to himself in splendor. The word may hint at the bride's beautiful wedding dress, since it's used of clothing. But it means more than this. Glory is the radiance of God, the shining forth and manifestation of his otherwise hidden being. So too the church's true nature will become apparent. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, tainted and ugly, despised and persecuted, that's the church. But one day she'll be seen for what she really is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It's to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It's the bridegroom, Jesus, who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. His love and self-sacrifice for her his cleansing and sanctifying of her are all designed for her liberation and perfection. Isn't that interesting? Like it's not designed to squash her down and make her something that I can control. 
sometimes I've been guilty of that. At times with my wife, I've, I've thought, I just there's something I need to control here. And I get into this weird sort of attitude of power that really gets messy. And my wife is a gr- very gracious woman for putting up with that at times and, uh, and being willing to uh, walk through that as I've repented. But it, it's a real mess when it gets into that. What Jesus is trying to do is liberate his church so that she can be all that she's meant to be. In the same way, a husband works hard to liberate his wife so that she can be all that she's meant to be. That happens at a spiritual level. No husband can save their wife. No husband can sanctify their wife and make them holy. That's God's job. But you're there to actually help the process, help the progress of your wife becoming the most beautiful, incredible woman on the planet. It is this constructive end. Sorry, I'll keep going. When at last he presents her to himself in her full glory. Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes this. Dare I put it like this? The beauty specialist will put his final touch to the church. The massaging will have been so perfect that there will not be a single wrinkle left. She will look young and in the bloom of youth, with color in her cheeks, with her skin perfect, without any spots or wrinkles, and she will remain like that forever. And then Paul continues on, doesn't he? And he says, uh, love your wife as much as you love yourself, as much as you love your own flesh. Because this sort of idea about the church is probably a seemingly far-fetched idea that probably doesn't really help you to take ground in reality. Every morning you get up and take care of yourself by having breakfast, you ought to love your wife the same way, or the same amount. You're loving yourself, you love your wife. It's, it's a natural thing to love yourself. It doesn't mean to love yourself more. It means to do it in the same way that you would love yourself. There's a poem by uh, John Piper. He says this, Love her more and love her less. This is addressed to uh, husbands and men in particular. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. If in the coming years, by some strange providence of God, you come to have the riches of this age and painless stride across the stage, beside your wife, be sure in health to love her, love her more than wealth. And if your life is woven in a hundred friendships and you spin a festal fabric out of all, your sweet affections, great and small, be sure, no matter how it rends, to love her, love her more than friends. And if there comes a point when you are tired and pity whispers, do yourself a favor, come be free, embrace the comforts here with me. Know this, your wife surpasses these, so love her, love her more than ease. And if your own should someday be the craft that critics all agree is worthy of great esteem and sales exceed your wildest dream, beware the dangers of a name and love her, love her more than fame. And if to your surprise, not mine, God calls you by some strange design to risk your life for some great cause, for neither fear nor love give pause. And when you face the gate of death, then love her, love her more than breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this venture not, but lest your love become a fool's facade, be sure to love her less than God. It's not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall as in humility before a likeness of your God. Adore above your best beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow. Beneath these promises first made to you by God, nor will they fade for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life, that you may give it to your wife. 
The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless. Go, love her more by loving less. That poem is a profound poem. I, I read it uh, just before I got married and, uh, and it's been a profound poem, a piece of, piece of work that's helped to shape the way that I think about uh, my marriage and the way that I love my wife. And loving God first is the only place I get to know how to love my wife. Doesn't John say, uh, we love because God first loved us? The only way any person can fulfill the call of love in a husband-wife relationship, in any relationship where you want to give up your life for the good of somebody else, uh, then to love God first and understand and receive His love means that you actually are transformed to love the other people even better than you could. To wives, Matthew Henry says this, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. So what does this submission look like? Under the the idea that Paul's calling men to an extremely high standard of love, a wife's submission um, is something that, what a great invitation, right? Who wouldn't want to submit to that sort of man who's loving her that way? Will he get it perfect? I'm not saying that. Will you get your submission perfect? No, I'm not saying that either. But this seems to be the call that God places on a wife to submit to her husband. What does it look like practically? Drawing near to God every day. Practicing his presence as you daily walk nearer to him. Submitting to to the wonder of Christ's love and sacrifice for you each day. So it starts at the same point, right? A husband is still in submission to Christ. If a husband thinks that he's the, he's the priority, he's the top dog, then his love for his wife and his family is diminished. Uh, and it's far less than what it ought to be. But where a husband is willingly submitting to Christ and to God out of reverence for him, um, then his love will be uh, appropriate. And so it is with a wife. Um, a wife who lovingly submits to her husband is firstly lovingly submitting to God. Christ is her saviour. Christ is uh, her redeemer and the changer of all her past and the changer of her present and the the hope that she has. Uh, Her her husband cannot fulfil Christ's role. No husband can fulfil that. No husband can perfectly uh, be the saviour of his wife. Um, So wives, draw near to God every day. Might be reading a scripture. It might be practising his presence daily as you pray in the fine moments that you have. Um, If you're a mother, you know how busy it is and it's very difficult to tune out time to be able to go and just spend time with God. Um, Maybe it's just praying while you do the dishes. Maybe it's praying while you change a nappy. Um, Practicing God's presence and enjoying Him in the very moments of every day. Number two, being a willing recipient of His love. This is true for a male or a female, but isn't it weird that... Sometimes it's hard to receive love. Sometimes when somebody tries to serve you and lovingly serve you, it's like, well, hold on, now I can do this on my own. I'm independent. I want to do this. I can get this done, all right? Don't worry about me. Um, And and it's a weird sort of barrier that gets put up um, sometimes within marriage. And and, uh, my encouragement to you is to be a recipient of his love. Um, It is imperfect, but you know the Christ who's behind his imperfect love. Um, and, and you can find great hope in that. So being, being a willing recipient of his love. 
Another commentator says this, The submission to and respect for the husband to which the wife is specifically admonished is by no means the submissiveness of a pussycat or a crouching dog. Others would say a doormat. It's not just a silent, be quiet, do as you're told. That's not what Paul's advocating here. Paul is thinking of a voluntary, free, joyful and thankful partnership as the analogy of the relationship of the church to Christ shows. Wherever the husband's headship mirrors the headship of Christ, then the wife's submission to the protection and provision of his love, far from detracting from her womanhood, will actually positively enrich it. So there's a sense in which you become more fully woman um, in, within marriage as you submit to your husband's loving, uh, sacrificial, Christ-like love. Number three, your submission to his love is just another aspect of love, which is self-giving and not self-seeking. Just in the same way a husband will love best uh, by laying down his life, so a wife will love best by laying down her desires and, uh, and, um, and selfish, selfishness. It's in self-giving um, that greatest happiness and fulfillment is found. Number four, praying for your husband. Take an opportunity to ask him how you can pray for him. Um, it may be uh, praying that he will change, um, but that could become pretty tedious after 65 years of marriage and he hasn't changed. The very much frustrating things that you, you found with him right from the very beginning. Um, so maybe it's a different prayer, a prayer that God would transform him into the man that he's, he's uh, called to be, that God, would, um, that God would help him to lead in the way that he's meant to lead uh, in an appropriate manner. So in conclusion, I want to invite everybody to listen. There's been moments to husbands specifically and to wives specifically. Uh, I want to invite everyone to uh, this last part. The giving of oneself to anybody is a recognition of the worth of the other self. Pause and think about this. It seems to be that this is where the most important stuff happens. It's in relationships with God, firstly, and with relationships with others. The giving of oneself to anybody is a recognition of the worth of the other self. For if I give up myself, it can only be because I value the other person so highly that I want to sacrifice for my, myself for his or herself in order that he may develop his selfhood or she hers more fully. Now to lose oneself that the other may find his or herself, that's the essence of the gospel of Christ. Isn't that that's, that's challenging to think about? Nobody really likes giving up themselves. But you can trust Jesus Christ when he says to give up yourself for the good of somebody else is actually going to mean life. And the greatest crux to give up your life to follow Christ so that his life can come and live within you, uh, that will mean life for you. It is also the essence of the marriage relationship for as the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to her husband, each is seeking to enable the others to become more fully himself and herself within the harmonious complementarity of the sexes. So my invitation for you today is, firstly, uh, how have you responded to Christ's love for you? You are all sitting here, uh, either because you are God's church or you would like to be God's church. You, you actually want to be part of God's church. Um, and it takes a response. Do you actually receive willingly of this incredible sacrifice of love that transforms, that redeems the past, that makes good the things that have been so painful for you? 
That's where it starts. For a husband, a wife, for any person. Um, Secondly, what does it look like in your marriage? Is laziness or complacency troubling your marriage? Just as uh, Jay Adams at the start mentioned, uh, you don't get to a great marriage by drifting. In fact, you drift into a uh, into monotony and uh, and difficulty. Um, so, is laziness or complacency troubling your marriage? Maybe some um, markers to check for. Uh, every time you spend time with your wife, is it sitting in front of the TV watching a favourite TV show? Is that every time? Is that, that the only time you actually spend time together? Um, is it only um, to get what you want from them? Maybe as a husband, you'd like to be intimate with your wife and you particularly brush her up to say, oh, you're beautiful, and really you're selfishly wanting something for yourself, uh, which isn't a demonstration of love. Um, is, are you becoming complacent in the way you pursue God and the way you pursue one another? Um, and finally, are you, are you more of a consumer in this marriage or a willing servant? A husband takes the lead in leading uh, with servanthood, um, serving his wife, serving his family, and sacrificing for that. Um, that goes against the current tide of culture, um, which says, keep doing the things you want to do, and, uh, and you'll be happy. You can have it all, um, like that mantra said at the start. Are you a consumer in this marriage or a willing servant? My invitation is for you to uh, become a servant, just as Christ did. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thanks so much uh, for your word, uh, which breathes truth and life into our lives. Um, The demonstration of your love for us as the church, God, uh, was so intense, so meaningful that it brought life um, and the opportunity for life, eternal life for all people. And so I pray that we would be willing recipients of your love and that uh, the truths of your word, the wonder of your goodness to us, the, uh, the breathing out of your grace upon us would be changing and transforming us. I pray specifically for marriages that, uh, that uh, those who are married would stand firm in their marriages uh, and that they would take stock of their marriages today and, uh, and learn and grow and change in the way that they love one another, um, in the way that the husband leads his wife and loves his wife, laying down his life for her betterment, for her good, for her um, becoming more fully alive. And so also of the wife as she submits, so that her husband will become more fully alive in what you've called him to as well. So God, please uh, please draw us into greater truths uh, in relation to these. We need your Holy Spirit's help and your great power at work in us to be able to fulfill these calls. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.